And this morning we're going to read from the book of Mark, so please do open it with me. If you are following along in a pew Bible this morning, you'll find that on page 1016, page 1016, Mark chapter 11. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 11 and verse 27 this morning. And Nigel is going to preach on this a little later. So Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and page 1016 in our pew Bibles. This is God's word to us. The disciples are traveling here with Jesus, and we come in at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gives you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. So they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He then began to speak to them, <coughs> sorry. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him. They beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this one on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. If you have a Bible handy, let's turn together to... Uh, Mark chapter, well, really Mark chapter 12, the parable of the tenants. We're hopefully going to uh, look at some of the stories that Jesus told uh, over the next number of weeks in the mornings, some of the, the well-known and uh, often referred to parables that Jesus told during the course of his ministry. And you can't have helped but notice uh, uh, this week that there is a new prime minister and uh, uh, some of us will think he's wonderful. Some of us will think he's awful. Many of us will not really care all that much. And uh, whether we do or not, it doesn't really matter because 
uh, what joins us together is not a, a common political outlook, but our common allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you will have noticed that one of Boris Johnson's jobs was to take questions in the House of Commons on Wednesday. Apparently, he answered over 120 questions, some of them designed to help him, uh, some hostile. And, and whatever you think about him, uh, many of the pundits are saying that, that one of his strengths is his ability in public speaking and in answering questions. Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself very different. When somebody asks me a question, I always have a brilliant answer, but it usually comes about an hour afterwards, and I find myself thinking, oh, I really wish I'd said, I really wish I'd said that. Now, one thing for sure, Jesus was tremendous at questions. He took a lot of questions, and many of the encounters that we have in the Gospels, we have because of people who came and asked Jesus questions. Sometimes people came genuinely seeking spiritual truth. What must I do to be saved? Sometimes people came asking Jesus a question, hoping to get him on side in some dispute that they were having. They were selfish in, in that regard. And sometimes, maybe many times, some of the questions were hostile. They were intending to trap him or discredit him with the crowd or with the authorities. But whatever the, the, the question was and the motivation for it, which of course Jesus understood, he answered them perfectly. He, you would never have found Jesus sitting an hour afterwards saying, oh, I really wish I'd mentioned that as well. And today in this passage in Mark, we find that Jesus has asked some questions, and there's no doubt that these questions are those that are intended to trap Jesus. He's in the, the temple area. This all takes place in the last week before the crucifixion, and uh, he's there in the area probably at Solomon's porch, a great pillared uh, canopy at the eastern edge of the temple. It's leading up to the crucifixion, and the Jewish leaders have come in order to discredit him and to trap him. And they ask, by what authority are you doing these things at the end of uh, chapter 11, verse 28? Now, it refers probably to the things that uh, Jesus did the day before in clearing the temple. You see that's referred to in chapter 11, verse 12 and following. The leaders effectively said, now, Jesus, you came here yesterday, and you, you turned this place upside down. You created an awful stir, and uh, who gives you the right to do this? But these questions are a trap, of course. They're hoping to get him to make some outrageous claim, perhaps for his own divinity or at least the divine authority that he has, and that will get him deeper into trouble. But Jesus is much too wise for them, and he brings a question back to them. He asks the, the same basic question uh, about authority about John the Baptist. Effectively, he's saying, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Well, where did John the Baptist get his authority from? Who was he working for? Who, who was his inspiration? Was it human or was it heavenly? And they couldn't answer because, not that they didn't know, but, but they knew that if they said it was from men, then they would get into trouble with the crowd because the people believed him rightly to be coming from God. But if they say it was from God, then the question would be, well, why did they not listen to him? And so they are absolutely in a jam and they, they can't ask Jesus, 
any further. And it shows, of course, that they, they knew that, that John the Baptist was from God, just like, like Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, in John's gospel, he says, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. So the religious leaders are shown here to be those who were opposing God at some level consciously. And Jesus makes them face up to that fact, that, that though they knew he came from God, they, they did nothing about it. Now, to drive home this point, Jesus tells them this well-known parable at the beginning of chapter 12, the parable of the tenants. And it's a perfectly plausible story to those who were listening that day. With our modern legal system and good communications, we find it Maybe inconceivable that these sorts of things could have happened, but it was quite common in Israel for land to be owned by what we would call today absentee landlords, people who lived a long, long way away. And here this landlord uh, plants this vineyard. He, he uh, does everything to it, gets the whole place set up absolutely perfectly, allows some tenants to come into it, and eventually he comes to seek rent. It could have been several years after they had taken over. And as well as being a plausible story, it's a, a devastating story because clearly it has a, a deeper meaning. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law see this at the end, verse 12. They looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So, so Jesus began his parable talking about a vineyard, and it would have been obvious that he was talking about the situation in the country and, and them as religious leaders. And the reason for that was because of our other reading in Isaiah chapter 5. There, Israel is pictured as a vineyard and the leaders as uh, those who have not done what they should. And it was a well-known song. And, and so he was clearly making a, a reference to uh, Israel being the vineyard. And they would have stood, understood, therefore, that the, the, the uh, landowner was God, that the tenants were they themselves, those who had religious responsibility for the people. And suddenly this story becomes an absolutely devastating critique on the whole history of God's people. Because you can see what it's saying. God has given them the nation. He has set them up, so to speak, and he requires only their love and obedience. And when that love and obedience is not forthcoming, he sends messengers to them, the Old Testament prophets, to remind them that they're not living as they ought. And then they mistreat terribly badly. Many they kill. And eventually the landowner sends his own son. He would have had more legal authority. And he is ignored. In fact, he's killed. And Jesus then, of course, is making this startling claim that he has introduced himself into the story as the son of the landlord, the son of God. It's a claim to his own divinity, and it's a prophecy of what they will do to him in a few days. Not only will he be ignored and mistreated, but he will be put to death. And you can see that Jesus is charging them with the responsibility of Israel going wrong. They were supposed to exercise good leadership under God, and they have failed to point people to God, and now, indeed, they're about to, fail, to uh, kill his son. It would have reinforced their desire to get rid of him once and for all, and that's exactly what they do. But, but this parable also speaks to us, and, and it, it teaches us about what we're like as people and, and, and what the human condition is and what God is like faced with our rebellion. 
So we're going to look at a number of of little pairs, three little pairs, three themes that uh, run, I think, through uh, this parable. So first of all, independence and accountability. What is the problem in the parable? Well, Jesus makes a clear diagnosis. At the heart of the problem is the question of ownership. Verse 7, the tenants say to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So here were uh, leaders or tenants who were not content to be tenants. They want to be owners. They want to usurp God's authority. They want independence. And this is the basic issue with us and our world. This is what lies behind the headlines on the the TV or, or in the newspapers. The scientists, of course, say something different. Well, you know, the world lacks adequate technology. If the tenants were to employ modern methods, then everything would be okay in the, in the vineyard. The evolutionists say, well, we haven't been at it long enough. If you give the tenants some more time, then they'll, they'll be better tenants. And the sociologists will say, well, the problem lies in, in how the tenants are getting on with one another and the structures that they've built around the place. If only they had a proper social interaction, then everything would be better. And Jesus says, look, it's none of these things. What's going on with the world is that there is a contest over ownership. We want to be owners. God made us, he designed us to be his tenants working under him under his authority, and yet we've rebelled against that position. That, that, that seems too lowly for us. We, we want to be in his position. We want to be owners, gods of our own lives. You remember Satan comes to Eve in the garden, and, and he tempts her to eat from the tree, and he says to her, you will be like God. It's the original temptation. God says, as it were, I've given you everything. I've given you this garden. You're to work for me. We'll dwell here in in harmony and and in in love and in obedience. And and Satan says to her uh, and to Adam, do you want to play second fiddle to him? Take control of your own destiny. Throw off the shackles of your creaturehood. Uh, Take this and, and, and be like him. You'll be like God. And what a lie. It's still believed today. It runs through our very DNA. That refusal to to submit to God and to live under his authority, it's the root of our problems. God says, here are the Ten Commandments, an expression of the character of God to shape the lives of those who are made in the image of God. And what do we do? We say, no, God, not going your way. I'm going to make my own rules. I'm going to live by my own code or by the code of what is acceptable around me. And what happens is disaster and heartbreak and judgment. Or or, or Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And and what do we do? We say, well, no, Jesus, I I don't really need a a, a savior. I'm not wearing a, a yoke of yours. That looks like slavery. I'm into freedom. I'll do without your rest. Maybe this is a, an issue for some of us. Maybe, maybe this is where we are. And, and, and can I suggest to you that, that, that if we're here today and we're not yet Christians, it's great that we're here. But actually, this is what's going on 
at a very deep level within our, our lives. There, there may be all sorts of questions that we have and all sorts of issues that we have with Christianity, some of which we, we really need to take time to work through. But, but deep down, here's something that is common to, to every human being before we come to Christ. And that is that we know we ought to be servants of God, but we don't want to play second fiddle to anyone. We, we want to own and run our own little vineyards. We want to be masters of our own destiny. We want to be the captains of our own souls. So independence, that's the first thing. But yet accountability as well, because not only does Jesus, as he tells this story, draw attention to our quest for independence, he draws attention to the fact that we are accountable. Because no matter how much these tenants try to usurp God's authority, the landlord's authority, the vineyard still belongs to him. They still owe him, and he will not rest until he gets what he is due. And it's that solemn truth, you see, that, that offsets man's quest for independence from God. We're also accountable to God, and that's what we need to take on board. We, we might live our own lives with ourselves in charge or feeling that we're in charge, but we do have to give an account for how we've lived to God, things we've done, the things we've said, how we have treated the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. We are accountable for all of these things. And it really ought to concern us. It's, it's, it's the biggest question that, that any of us face in our lives. We live as if we're accountable to no one, and yet one day we will give account to our Creator. So, so this is what, what Jesus is saying to us as he tells us this parable. There's a problem with our quest for independence, but we're accountable to God. Independence and accountability. Privilege and patience. There's our second little pairing. Privilege and patience. What, what we see in, in this parable is that the tenants are people who have been given remarkable privileges. They, they, the vineyard is all set up for them. It's been planted. The, the tower has been built. The walls have been built. The wine press is, is there. It remains only for them to uh, tend it and to harvest it and to give the landlord his dues. And it reflects, of course, the incredible privileges that, was, that were enjoyed by Israel. God had brought them into being. They were a people chosen and special different. They knew the mind of God. They had the word of God. And yet what we find is that, that as we read through God's people's story, we find that they squander their privileges. And yet God is patient with them at the same time. He sends them prophets to warn them, rebuke them, and to encourage them to come back to him. God strives to them at great cost to himself as we read the scriptures. And by the time that Jesus comes, the people are far away from where they ought to be. They're bound by legalism and ritual. They know little of what it is to have true faith in God. And when Jesus comes, they give God the ultimate insult of rejecting him too and putting him on a cross. Privilege and patience. And of course, it's not just these people who are privileged. We too have been tremendously privileged by God. So these last couple of weeks, I, I've, I've found myself driving through parts of northern England and southern Scotland, northern Ireland as well. And, and just about every town and village you come to, it, it's littered with, with church buildings, monuments, sometimes monuments to the past and to, 
to what God has done in the past in our land. We, we, we're, we live in a part of the world that, that has known much about the gospel for generations. And what have we done with all of that privilege? Many of us are, are, are privileged as people. I was hearing a little bit at Keswick of the, the vast numbers of people who have never yet heard the gospel once, never had the Bible explained to them for two minutes. And yet, how many times have we had the Bible opened? I was looking back through some of our, our, our notes to see when we'd last looked at some of these parables. It's roughly 10 years ago. And the thought occurred to me that in that space of 10 years, a thousand times we have opened the Bible here in this church and preached God's Word. Twice every Sunday for 10 years, a thousand times. Some of us have been here through all of those times, just about. Uh, and God speaks to us again and again. And, and for some of us, maybe it is that we've, we've heard a thousand times the Word of God opened up, and yet we're still not saved. What have we done with our privileges as individuals? We've been privileged God has been patient with us, privilege and patience. Judgment and grace, last two. The, the parable ends with these solemn words in verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. God is patient, yes, but there is a limit. There, there is a line in the sand. There comes a point in man's quest for independence when God says enough and, and judgment falls. It was true for Israel, just as Jesus said that the vineyard would soon be taken from those tenants and transferred to other people, to the Gentiles, as it were. The purposes of God would be worked out largely in a different setting. And Jesus goes on to quote to them a couple of Old Testament verses from Psalm 118. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builder rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, the stone, depending on your translation, the stone that Jesus has in mind here is not entirely clear. It might be the cornerstone, which is the sort of chief foundation stone of a building, or the capstone that sort of fits at the top of an arch and holds the whole thing together. So let's say it's the, the second, the capstone, and the picture then is something like this. The, the, the builders are embarking on a great building project, and they find this oddly shaped stone, and they think, oh, what, what a useless stone. It's not, it's not got any purpose in this building that we're building. And they, they carry on with their building, and they need this final stone to make the whole thing come together. And lo and behold, the very stone that they've rejected is the one that fits perfectly into place. The thing that they thought was useless is absolutely key and critical. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. You see how that picture works, can't you? <clears throat> Jesus is rejected by these Jews. Very uh, shortly, the ultimate act of rejection would come as they nail him to the cross. But the point is that Jesus is the very critical key to the whole enterprise. God has purposes for him. He was going to be rejected by men, but exalted by God. 
And ultimately, he is the capstone, the one in through which everything fits together, the very crowning work of the heavenly Father. And on that day, he's revealed as the judge of men, the one to whom all give account. Now, maybe you think, oh, well, it serves those uh, hypocritical Jews right. They, they, they had <clears throat> uh, rejected Jesus. They're the ones who crucified him after all. And yet, remember the old Negro spiritual that sometimes we may have heard, were you there when they crucified our Lord? And of course, the, this, the answer to that is, is yes, we were. We, we were there, not in some mystical sense, but in the sense that it was because of, of your sin and mine that he hung there. We're among those who have given God the ultimate insult by rejecting and crucifying his son. What, what will the owner of the vineyard do to us? Do we face his judgment? Yes, we do. And yet at the same time as Jesus speaks of judgment, he is also the one who has been weeping over Jerusalem and is preparing to take the place of sinners. Here's the great paradox of, of, of the gospel and the great paradox of, of how God acts towards us as people. Here he is full of, of anger and wrath towards us because of our sin, our independence, our pride, crucifying of his son, and yet at the same time, seeking us in love, providing a way that we might escape his wrath. He makes a way for us to be saved, ironically through the very death that we have caused of his son, Jesus. Now, in one sense, I'm sure that's not news to any of us here. But there's another sense in which perhaps for some of us it is news simply because it comes to us freshly and, and with the power of God, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. We, some, we sometimes hear that, you know, somebody comes to Christ and they say, you know, I, I'd never really heard the gospel before. And yet they had heard hundreds and hundreds of times <clears throat> where, where faithful uh, explanations of the gospel had, had been given to them. And, and yet there was a time in which it just came freshly to them. Is that, is that true for some of us? We realize that we've been seeking to be free from God. We sort of think that, that, that independence from God is much, much better than submission to Him. We've maybe tried to live independently from Him. Maybe we haven't even tried. The truth is that, that we do it very naturally without even thinking about it. And maybe we realize that we're, we're accountable to Him. We're, we're so aware of our privileges, and we're so aware that God has been patient with us. And we realize that we face his judgment. We, we know we would not be ready to stand before him and face his gaze. Can I urge you to, that's you, if, to run to Jesus Christ. As he says these things, he's preparing to go to the cross for, for people like you and me. He's the one who's able to save you. He's the one who stood in our place. So here, here's the parable of the vineyard, a really basic and, 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 and well-known parable told when Jesus is asked to account for his actions. By whose authority do you do these things? And yet Jesus turns to these people and warns them that they will have to give account for their actions. And he asks us and warns us 
that we will have to give account for ours. How will we face the Lord? Alone before his wrath or clothed in Jesus, saved from his anger, safe in his love? Let's pray together. Lord, these things are in some ways so familiar to us. And yet in pondering them, they come to us freshly and powerfully. And we pray, Lord, in your mercy, if if we're those who, who would hold you at a distance, that they might come to us powerfully and savingly as you break our every barrier down and help us to see, Lord, that we need this Jesus more than anything. Help us, Lord, we pray. For it's in his name we ask. Amen.